Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Let's get into our word today. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we've been going through the book of Daniel, not exhaustively, but hitting some high points in the prophecies of Daniel in the Old Testament. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the furnace. How many of you are familiar with the fiery furnace? A few of you, even if you've not been a part of the church or any church for that matter, my guess is you've heard of a fiery furnace that some guys with weird names were thrown into uh, by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego, okay? And uh, we're going to be talking about them in just a few moments. But today, really going to unpack this theme of humility. What does it mean to be humble? And what does it mean to be prideful? We're going to contrast the two and unpack that through the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor of Babylon. And then uh, three high-ranking members of his royal court by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were actually three Jewish males that were carried off into captivity after Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They took some of the choicest, more royal and smartest people, and instead of killing them, they made them into eunuchs. If you don't know what that is, look it up. And then they carry them off into Babylon to be used for their services rather than the services of their own kingdom. Kind of like what we did in World War II. We took some of the high-ranking officials from different places and had them work on space programs and stuff in the United States. But that's a different topic for a different time, okay? All right, so before we get started, I did come across an illustration that I think aptly fits our our context and is is good to kick off our message with this morning. And it's a true story uh, about uh, a guy by the name or a professor by the name of Stuart Blackie at the University of Edinburgh many years ago. He was teaching uh, a class to do oral presentations. And of course, there's a certain way you are to hold yourself, your posture and everything. And when you are speaking, You are to speak by holding the book or the text that you're reading from in your right hand, just to give you context. So he'd already trained them on the basics of this. And so one day, there was one man who rose to begin his recitation, and he held his book in the wrong hand. The professor, Blackie, yelled at him from across the room, saying, take your book in your right hand and be seated. At this harsh rebuke, um, the student held up his right arm, and he didn't have a hand on that right arm. The other students shifted uneasily in their seats, and for a moment, the professor hesitated, wondering what he was going to do. Then he made his way up to the student. He put his arm around him, and with tears streaming from his eyes, Dr. Blackie said, I never knew. Will you please, please forgive me? 
It goes on to read, his humble apology made a lasting impact on that young man. Many years after that occasion, there was another large gathering of believers, and at the close of the meeting, a man came forward, turned to look at the crowd, and he raised his right arm without the hand on it. Nobody knew this guy was in the midst of this, never had heard this story except for this first day. He was the student that Dr. Blackie yelled at. Professor Blackie, he gave testimony that, and not Professor Blackie, but the student gave testimony of Professor Blackie that day and said, Professor Blackie led me to Christ through the course of our time together, but he could have never done it if he had not made what was wrong right. Humility. Humility is a virtue, a virtue easily acquired but difficult to keep. It's difficult to know when you have it, and it's hard to know when you've lost it. It's antithesis, pride, often masquerades as humility, but the difference is in the focus of the individual. False humility is demonstrated when a person is more concerned about how they are perceived by others than about how they are serving others. It's a lack of concern for the self and more of a concern for those outside of the self. Pride can convince us that we are humble by showing us how good we think we are rather than the truth of who we really are compared to the goodness of God. Let me say that again because it's a, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Pride can convince us that we are humble by showing us how good we think we are. Now think about that for a minute. When you've had success... Or when somebody has just really breathed encouragement and life into you, you walk away feeling like you're, you're super tall. Yes, I, and you're like, I am that good, right? Be careful. It's not bad to receive accolades. It's what you do with the accolades in humility or in pride that can become the problem or the benefit, okay? If I take what people are saying about me, and then I elevate my own status and my own mind above and beyond what it should be elevated to, then there's a problem. Because then I think I'm invincible and nobody else understands. And so pride can take root. But if somebody gives me accolades and gives me praise for something that, yes, maybe I've done well, and I keep it in proper perspective in my relation to God, then I realize it's really God to whom I owe praise, honor, and glory. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the ability. Then I have proper perspective by which to receive praise and honor and reflect that back to God, who I am the image bearer of. Does this make sense? Okay, so with that, let's get into our context today. Don't turn there yet, but we're going to be going to Daniel chapter 3, starting with verse 12, or excuse me, verse 19. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. There are Bibles in front of you if you didn't bring one. I would like for you to turn there because I want you to see where it's at in the Bible. My role as a pastor, a teacher, and a preacher is to also not just teach you the word, but teach you where to find it in the word so that you yourself can do in your own due diligence the study that you should be doing outside of this context, okay? So Daniel chapter 3 is where we will be today, verse 19, but let's lead up to the passage today. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were um, 
friends of Daniel who actually wrote the book. Daniel became second in command over Babylon after he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream accurately. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with Daniel that he put him in this high, high official position. Now, Daniel then takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cohorts or friends of his who are also very smart guys, and brings them with him into the context of that leadership role. Well, later on in the story, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king that he is, decides he's going to, I don't know, build a golden statue. And this golden, and of course, like I told you last week, you remember in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, what was the head of gold on the statue in his dream? It was, it was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as the king. And so I'm wondering if at that point he didn't foreshadow a time, I'm going to build a whole gold statue. That's pure speculation, but it does tie together when you consider what's going on between chapter 2 and chapter 3. He finds out God has proclaimed me through Daniel that I am and my kingdom is the head of gold. So why not build a statue? And so he does. And he builds a statue. We aren't told what the image is, but he builds a statue of a man that is 90 feet tall. It's huge. Babylon is known for gold. Remember last time I told you in the dream it was known for gold because they would put gold on everything. They had gold as common as, as anything you and I would keep in common nowadays. It overlaid walls and ceilings and edifices, anything you could think of. And so he takes the gold and he makes a statue out of it. <clears throat> Now, he has some other kind of worldly leaders, not Jewish leaders, godly leaders in his court who say, you know what? You should get everybody in the nation to bow down and worship this statue. That'd be a good idea. You know, they were trying to trip the king up to put an edict in place because they knew, he knew, excuse me, they knew that they wouldn't destroy or the, the Israelites wouldn't bow down. So the Israelites in captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, and several others, worship one God of heaven and earth. His name is Yahweh. And we get the word Yahweh or the name Yahweh from the name God gives to himself at the burning bush in Exodus 3 when Moses says, who are you, basically? And God says, I am that I am. When you put that down in Hebrew, it is Yahweh. We really don't know how to pronounce that word, by the way, because Hebrew didn't have vowels, and the Jews never would pronounce that word out loud like you and I do. And so we don't know even what it sounds like. It almost sounds breathy, like breath. That's a whole sermon for a different time. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But it's the breathing in and the breathing out of this word that we associate with God, which is Yahweh. So they knew these Israelites won't bow down and worship anything. And we don't like them anyway. They're a pain in our butt. And they're getting the high-ranking positions. That's not fair. And so let's scheme and plan. If we can get the king to do something that would set these guys up for failure, then we can actually get to where we need to be. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Uh, 
after the statue was built won't bow down and worship it. Well, these tattletales <laughs> go back and tell the king, they won't bow down and worship your statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets really ticked off. And I mean, not just ticked off. It says in the passage we're going to read today that he gets so furious that he was distorted with rage and anger. What does it mean? Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever been so angry that you were distorted with anger? Let me see your distorted anger look. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. It looks like constipation. Seriously, let me see your distorted anger look, right? What does that look like? I think you and I could probably associate ourselves with that because there have been times in our lives when we've been really angry. I mean, angry beyond the point where we should be. Anger is not bad in and of itself. It's what we do with it. And sometimes when we get enraged with anger because somebody has done something to us or we've forgotten something or your child isn't doing what you tell them to do or the parent's not doing what the child tells them to do, you know, all of that stuff, we get really angry. Maybe your boss promoted somebody over you when you were next in line for the promotion. Maybe it was any number of things, but you know what it means to be angry beyond the point of no return. Some of you do. This is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And let's pick up his story and their story today. Verse 19 Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. So this was a, a furnace that was used for execution. They used it for other things too, but for the most part, it was an execution kind of thing. Uh, the Babylonians mastered execution of their enemies, uh, just like the Romans did later on, two more kingdoms beyond them. And uh, each empire had its specific way of torturing people or executing people. Uh, whatever you want to call it, we do the electric chair, right? In many of our states, some of them are reinstituting firing squads, believe it or not. I just read that somewhere not too long ago. Don't quote me on that, but check it out for yourself. But we have, there are different empires that have different means by which to execute their enemies or those who break the law and, re and require capital punishment. And so the furnace was that for them. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his distorted rage, has his workers, his servants, stoke the fires of this furnace seven times hotter. Now, that'll come into play in just a moment, but just keep that in the back of your mind. Seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army. That will come back in a moment, too. Okay? Jewish people by stature were much shorter people, 5'5", five, 5'7", five, five, the average height is considered to be about the, same, uh, the right height back in Daniel's day. The Babylonians were more northern and, and around different regions and would have been taller and probably bigger in stature. So now think of why, why in the world would Nebuchadnezzar want to stoke the fire seven times hotter than usual and get his strongest men to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them in the fiery furnace or the blazing furnace. Smaller guys, they aren't showing any sign of resistance. What's the point? 
Verse 21, so they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and garments. Normally, to add insult to injury, before somebody was executed, they would strip them bare so that they're naked before the whole crowd uh, that they're being executed in front of. But there was this rage. You know what, in rage, when you are, are, when there is rage in you, you don't think and process things. You just react, right? And you're like, I've never been enraged. Well, good. Um, but rage is, is, is not, it's something that, that comes on us through an intense anger that we react rather than process what we're doing before we do it. It's a different type of anger. And so they grab these guys. He said, grab the guys, wrap them up, throw them in there. And so that's what they did. And because the king in his anger had demanded that the fire be so hot in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. You ever uh, been, been close to a hot fire? Have you ever, <laughs> as a stupid kid, when uh, I lived in Kentucky and I was told to do, I'll give you a little for instance, a little, little home story. It was my responsibility because we, we, we had a furnace in the house. It was a smaller house that I grew up in. Um, but we supplemented our heat with fire. And it wasn't gas where you turn the gas on. No, it was actual log. It was my responsibility because I was a latchkey kid. I'd come home, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old when I got off the bus. If the fire had died down, I had to stoke the coals, get the fire started before mom and dad got home. Oh, the wisdom of a child. So, I decided one day, because the fire had gone completely out, there were no hot coals in there, that I would get the kindling and all that other stuff ready, but I wasn't going to fiddle around with paper and then trying to light it and it go out and all that stuff. I went down and got the gas can. Don't you moan at me. And I started dousing that fire. Oh, it was good times. Good times. Love the smell of gasoline. That's why I don't have as many brain cells as I used to. So I'm dousing that fire. There's no flame yet. But there's a smell of gas in the den. And a match ready to go. And I strike the match. And no, no longer than it get out of my hand, it goes, whoo! and blew me back into the middle of the floor. And this fireball comes out I'm like, oh, crap, I've burned the house down. But then it somehow the flue was open and it kind of sucked it back up. So I was, it was good. But I never told my parents that until much later on in life. Yeah, I wonder why. The intensity of the flame that singed the eyebrows off my face was intense. You ever been in front of a fire that becomes so intense that you have to back up? I mean, you're not close enough to touch the flames, but the heat from the fire is so intense, you can only get so close to it. So Nebuchadnezzar says, increase the fire seven times the normal rate. So the guys that now, the strong men who were told to bind and carry the three over and throw them into the fire, they can only get so close before they themselves run the risk of getting burned. But they have to take them right to the edge to throw them in. 
But they get there and they throw these guys in and because the heat is so intense, they themselves die. It doesn't say they fall into the furnace, but they die from the intense heat exposure next to the furnace. So after this is done, Nebuchadnezzar suddenly notices and jumps up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie three men up and throw them into the furnace? So keep in mind where the king was, in direct line of where the furnace was, he could see into the furnace. Okay, you would have been able to see three bodies burning, but these bodies aren't burning. They're walking around, and didn't, didn't they just throw three in there? And the advisors say, yes, your majesty. <laughs> we certainly did. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Elohim. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the furnace because he couldn't get too close either. And he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. And then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire hadn't even touched them like the fireball in my den did whenever I threw gas on it. I smelled like gas and stink and burnt hair. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. You could sit around a campfire and walk away and people could tell, oh, you've been, you've been camping? <laughs> Where you been? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. Keep in mind, these are the words from Nebuchadnezzar's lips, who just a moment ago had been so distorted with rage that he was becoming impulsive because his pride was hit, because they wouldn't do what he told them to do. They defied the king's command, Nebuchadnezzar said, and they were willing to die rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, if any people, whatever, their race, nation, language, they speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn <laughs> limb from limb. I told you they mastered execution and torture. They will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Here's the key point. Yahweh, God, humbles even the most proud so that they worship him in praise and honor. You got one of two ways to react when you were humbled. If you are prideful and you stand in deference or indifference to God, he will ultimately humble you, believe it or not. Whether you believe in him or not, he will humble you. Are you willing to be humbled and take your lumps 
Or are you prideful enough that you won't even admit when you're wrong? Nebuchadnezzar was wise enough as a king that when he was shown the error of his ways, he was willing to say, yikes, I was wrong. Their God is the greatest God. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't still believe in other gods of his own polytheistic tradition. Marduk was the king god or the high god of the Babylonians. Think of the testimony in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, coming from his mouth. When he says now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God is the most high God of all. Brandon, are you saying there are other gods out there? It's not what I'm saying. But these nations that surrounded Israel back in the day worshipped gods of their own making. Some even believe that they worship the demonic entities that rule and power uh, and, are, and rule this world in which we live. Like Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers of darkness, rulers of this dark world, demonic entities. That's who we wrestle against. So some scholars believe that those were the entities that they worshiped, they just called them by different names. But Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, truly, Yahweh is the God of gods, the King of kings. The first point here is true humility requires faith in something or someone greater than yourself. You are only humbled when you see something is greater than yourself or someone is greater than yourself. I contend there is nothing or no one other than God himself who, sh who we should ever be comparing ourselves to. And when you compare yourself to the Most High God, where do you stand in relation to him? That's a good question, right? We do a great job at comparing ourselves with other people. How many of you have ever done that? Don't raise your hand. Because you're like, I don't, I, I, we compare ourselves, all right, as a pastor, we compare ourselves to other ministries and other churches. Well, trust me, it is a bad cycle to get into that you have to war against and wrestle against. Well, this church has that program and this thing and that thing. And there's this sense of competition that comes into play that is not healthy. But do you compare yourself to other people? Maybe you compare yourself to the people on magazine covers. Or maybe you compare yourself to people in movies or sitcoms or TV shows. And maybe your goal is to be the funniest person ever, but there's somebody funnier than you or the prettiest person ever, and there's somebody prettier than you or handsome, somebody more handsome, maybe the most wealthy or the most successful. And we get caught in this trap of comparison. The real person that we should ever be comparing ourselves with is God because in reality, God is the one who loves us the most. And when we realize who we are in comparison to him, we see ourselves in proper perspective, not as worms ready to be stomped on and ground into the ground, but rather as somebody who he loves and desires our love in return. That's what the Bible is all about. When you read it through, it's about God's pursuit of humanity because he loves them so much and doesn't want them to live without him. Yes, he does give his wrath at times. Because there's a, there's a limit to his patience. But the limit to his patience goes centuries before he acts in judgment toward his people. 
God is a God of love, and he desires us to see him as that and to see us in contrast with that so that we can become more like him. That's why he sent his son, Jesus, so that we could follow in his footsteps and do the things he did, to love the way he loved and to live the way he lived. Who do you see is greater than yourself? That is the beginning of humility, which requires faith. Nebuchadnezzar's misguided worship of the so-called gods of Babylon would continually get him into situations. Why did he intensify the heat seven times over? It's not because the flames would not have killed them otherwise. They would have killed them. Throw them in the fire. Eventually, they're going to die. But why seven times hotter? Because Nebuchadnezzar believed in gods. And he decided, I'm going to stoke the flames seven times hotter so that no god will be able to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'll have them bound tight, and I'm going to take my strongest men so that no god will be able to rescue them from my hands. Do you ever get stubborn, want to do things your own way? You think you can subvert God's will in ways? We get prideful in those regards, don't we? I'm going to do things my, I know what God's word says. I know, okay, you can live in obedience to him or you can live under his judgment. The reality is it's not he's going around with a cosmic gun trying to zap you whenever you do something wrong. You've got a bad idea of God if that's your perspective of God. The reality is God knows that in order for things to go well with you, you need to be in his will. That doesn't mean it's going to go perfectly and everything's going to be roses and lollipops, but it does mean you're going to be secure in who you are and whose you are and you're going to be headed in the right direction even if difficulties come your way. The other aspect of this is if you go your own way, it may be good for the moment or seem good at the moment, but eventually it comes up empty. Have you ever seen the E! True Hollywood stories? Maybe I'm too old. You remember those like the uh, entertainment TV and they do the E! True Hollywood stories on famous people, this person that achieved all of this fame and fortune and wealth and it still happens today, what happens to many that achieve what we would call the epitome of success? They crash and burn. Why is that? Because many of them will tell you, and I've heard them in interviews, when they've gotten to crest the top of that hill that everybody's striving to get to in this world, they realize it's empty. The view from that point is lonely, And they wondered why they even wanted it in the first place because they've got anything they could ever want and, it's, and they're still a mess. It's because there's only one, there's only one to whom our allegiance is owed and if we go searching to give our allegiance to anything or anyone else, we're always gonna come up empty. I'm going to say this in your marriages, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your relationships. If I am trying to get from somebody something they cannot give me that only God can give me, then I'm searching in vain. This is why many marriages fall apart because of pride, stubbornness, and all of that. But more importantly, it's because we put a spouse on the pedestal in our lives that God is reserved for, or excuse me, that is reserved for God. 
and we expect our spouse, whether we mean to or not, to do for us and to be for us what only God can do and be for us. And so that when our spouse is not achieving what we expect them to achieve, we get let down. This is why my first and second sessions are on expectations in, in, in premarital counseling or in marital counseling. What are you expecting from each other? And is what you're expecting from each other healthy and good? And is God at the proper place in your life that he should be? It's only when God is at that proper place in your life that you then have proper perspective by which to judge the rest of the world. And I don't mean judge in the sense of bringing the hammer down, but in the way of seeing the world clearly the way it should be seen through God's eyes. The second one is the proud are blind, but the humble truly see. Pride is a blinding agent. It's like somebody grabbing a fistful of sand and throwing it in your face. Or it's like staring directly into the sun. You can't see because you're blinded by it. Biblical scholar and author Sibley Towner writes a powerful statement regarding the three being thrown into the furnace. As they plunged into the furnace, the three young men had at least this satisfaction. I want you to hear this very clearly because I'm going to bring up something in just a moment uh, that may be controversial. They had this satisfaction. Their deaths subverted the power of the authorities to crush integrity and to silence truth. Say that again. As they plunged into the furnace, the three young men had at least this satisfaction. Their deaths subverted the power of the authorities to crush integrity and silence the truth. Their faith in God and their integrity remained intact as they faced imminent destruction. Have you ever said this? Well, they made me do it. Have your kids ever said that? Well, my brother, my sister, they made me do it. I can imagine a long line on judgment day to the judgment seat of Christ and a lot of people saying, well, it's not my fault. They made me do it. How much of you, uh, maybe those of you who are parents can relate to this. How much better is it for you when your child comes to you and takes ownership for what they've done? It makes you want to punish them less. Am I correct? Maybe some of you are like, no, I think it's the full force of the law. <laughs> no, I, I, one of the things I've told my kids, and, and if you tell me the truth up front, you own what you've done, you are more likely to get a lesser punishment than if you blatantly lie to me and don't take ownership for what you've done. And if I have to find out through the grapevine, the evidence that I really need to know to convict you of this crime is going to be really bad for you. Right? We've had to go there a time or two. You see, when we're humble enough, we're able to own up to stuff. 
We can't scapegoat. We can't throw somebody else under the bus. But it's our nature as sinful human beings to do that. But when you are a believer in Christ, you have become redeemed. You are a new creation. And so you should never go back to the old ways of, of the blame game and, and casting uh, dispersions because you aren't willing to own up for your own issues. My kids will say, well, they made me say this or they made me do this. Nobody can make you do something that you aren't willing to do in the end. Take ownership. I don't matter how hard you have been manipulated or coerced or peer pressured against, it is ultimately your decision of whether you're going to do something or not. And there's no amount of excuse you can throw out there. The blame game has been around as long as Genesis 3. It's the woman you gave me. Well, it's the serpent who tricked me. But did you take the bite? I mean, did, did the woman, hey, hey, Adam, did the woman grab that fruit and just shove it into your mouth? And did she make your mouth like this so you could chew on it? Did she make you do that? Oh, and, and Eve, the serpent, he's crafty and tricky. Did he shove that into your mouth too? No. But see, the woman was at least more honest than the guy, if I'm being honest here. If you look at it, she said, it's the serpent who deceived me. She at least said, I was deceived. I believed what was not true as being true. And Adam just said, yeah, that's that lady there. You know the woman you gave me? So God, technically, it's not only her fault, it's your fault too. Because he accuses God in the same breath. Pride will blind us to the truth of a situation, but humility pulls back the veil so we can see with clarity. The third thing is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Have you heard of that? Sounds like a Bible verse. Though the proud may seem to succeed for a while, God remains in opposition to them. I want you to understand that. Some of the people who are the most proud seem to succeed. You know, the biggest backpatters of them all. Look at me. Look how good I am. They're the villains in the movies, right? You just think, oh, I can't wait until they get it. Right? You've just seen the movies? And it's the, the, the underdog, the downtrodden, the, hum, the ones who are humbled because they've been humiliated by life itself that you're, you're really championing. Oh, come on. You can do this. I know you can do You're going to have your day. And the proud seem to succeed, and they strut their stuff, and then they rub it in everybody else's face. Though they may seem to succeed for a while, God remains in opposition to the proud. However, those who remain humble, God always gives grace. Nebuchadnezzar had to be convinced that the power he had was conceived by his own, had become convinced that the power he had was conceived by his own strength. Look at the empire. Look at what I've amassed. The gods favor me. I'm at the top of my game. See, this is the problem with the prosperity theology idea. Is that the downtrodden don't have enough faith or they would be more successful or have enough money. And those who are at the top of their game are being blessed by God. I think the theory, that theory is blown out of the water when you look at the life of Christ. Let's be honest. He suffered greatly. 
I mean, if he was going about it by the, the world standards, he would have amassed not just a following, but a kingdom of his own on earth. He would have had an army of individuals that would have, by brute force, overtaken other nations, the Roman Empire to begin with. But that's not what his kingdom was about. And when we sign up to be a believer in Christ, we become a citizen of that kingdom. And this, that kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't have the same rules. It doesn't function the same way. As a matter of fact, it looks completely upside down to the world. But I contend that you are living as a citizen of that kingdom. The rest of the world looks upside down to you. So the question is, does the world in which you live look upside down or does it look right side up compared to the kingdom of God? What's your perspective? Because if you are a citizen of the kingdom and you're seeing the world through the lens of the kingdom of God, you realize how messed up the world really is. And you don't want to have part in the things of this world. Rather, you want the world to see the kingdom in which you live and to be a part of that. That's why we look weird to the world. That's why many Christians who are truly living for Christ and living out the commands, teachings, and ideals of Jesus Christ look so weird to the rest of the world. There's a, different, there's a different kind of weird, however, okay? There's an obnoxious weird that you don't want to be around, but then there's a weird that's attractive. Like, ooh, let me check that out a little bit. That's, that's, that's outside of the normal for me. Have you seen the obnoxious weird Christians? Come on. You know who I'm talking about. Somebody's elbowing you right now. I'm just kidding. They're not. Do you know what I'm talking about? The ones that go around and have to beat you over the head with a verse or a Bible, they, they just they wield the Bible not as a sword which, which divides bone and marrow, according to the writer of Hebrews. They wield it like a, more like a machete. Have you seen somebody use the Bible like a machete? What do you do with it? If you go into the woods, you're a camper, you like to hike, what do you do with the machete? You hack whatever's in your way. <laughs> There are too many Christians that use the Bible that way, that use their faith that way. Well, God says, waka! And the Bible, waka! We've mastered the hacking. We've not mastered the surgical procedure to use the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives and hearts. And we don't pull it out until it's necessary. Does that make sense? And when we do, it is a surgical process. Now, let me tell you about what God's done for me. You're going through this rough patch, and, you know, I can't completely relate, but there's a similar situation. Can I tell you my story, too? That is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the humble use it in a way that brings about hope and life, not destruction. That doesn't mean everybody's going to give, a, give a, an ear to what you have to say. Keep that in mind. Even when you use it in the right way, there will be people that reject you because consider Jesus, the living word, the word made flesh who dwelt among us, wasn't received by everybody. And just because you may not be received by everybody doesn't mean you shouldn't go. Okay? 
We fear rejection, it's because we're too prideful. When you fear rejection, it's because you were so caught up in yourself that you weren't able to see outside of yourself. Do you understand what rejection is? Do you, do you catch where I'm going with this? I'm not trying to be some psychologist or philosopher up here trying to twist words. The reality is, if I'm fearing rejection, who am I focused more on? Did you hear me say moron? <laughs> who am I focused on more? Sorry, I just, my mind goes, and you guys know, you sit in this way too much. You're like, yeah, it's crazy. No, but seriously, when, I'm when I fear rejection... What do I focus on more? Who am I focusing more on? <laughs> Me. Stop it. That's funny. You're funny. I'm focused more on me. I'm focused on the self, how I'm going to be received by somebody else, how I compare to somebody else. See, the enemy doesn't have to use brutal, in-your-face tactics to get you to work for him. All he has to do is to twist it a little bit to get you to focus on yourself. And you may think horribly of yourself. You may think you deserve to be rejected. Again, that is a form of pride. Do you catch this? When I am focused more on me than I am on him, then I'm focused on the wrong person, whether I'm focused on me in a bad way or a good way. Yes? Are you with me? Yes. Okay, just make it sure. But when I'm focused more on him than I am on anyone or anything else, then guess what I'm going to be producing? More of him, which is truth. But Brandon, I don't know how to focus on him. Get out of your own head. Get out of your own life processes. What does Jesus say? If you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Remember in the Gospels, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? If you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life, Jesus is saying this, for my sake, you will gain it. What does it profit you, he goes on to say, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Some of you are mixed up in your own world whether it's a, a world of self-loathing or self-gratification, that you are too prideful to see what God has offered you freely to say, all you have to do is to give up everything that you have and take what I have to offer. Because you are so full of other stuff right now, you can't take anything that I'm giving you. Are you willing to get out of your own head, out of your own systems, and out of your own processes, and, and, and get out of yourself, good or bad, to just take everything I have to offer you? And then you can truly see your worth, because I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. Sure, it took your father's seed and your mom's seed, but I'm the one who brought those two together and brought them to life. And I knit you together. I know what you're made of. The problem is you think you know what you're made of, but you don't. And you keep failing over and over and over because you've not been willing to clean house and to let me take residence. And only the humble who come to the end of themselves are able to do that. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. 
Do you catch what I'm saying? A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. They do not exist. They are diametrically opposed. And I've seen a lot of prideful Christians. I've been that a time or two myself. Where God's had to say, wake up, Brandon. <laughs> and not about you. It's all about me. Have you ever seen, you remember the song? It's all about you. Sorry, I don't know why I go into falsetto on that, but that's how I hear it in my head. Jesus. All right. Amen, Julie. The cheerleaders over here. You guys are great. Don't always get it right, but you're great. No, just kidding. <laughs> on that note, let's close up, shall we? That's pride right there. Just, you wouldn't have gone, oh, if you weren't prideful. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, y'all. All right, let's, let's finish up. As our worship team comes forward, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul for just a moment. The Apostle Paul, listen to what he wrote in, um, in three of his letters, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes, I am the least of the apostles. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I am the very least of the saints. And then when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Considering these three verses, J.I. Packer, uh, in his book, Your Father Loves You, writes this. I want you to hear what he says about these verses. Humility and passion for praise are a pair of characteristics which together indicate growth in grace. The Bible is full of self-humbling individuals and doxology, which is praise to God. The healthy heart is one that bows down in humility and rises in praise and adoration. The Psalms strike both these notes again and again. So too, Paul in his letters both articulates humility and breaks into doxology. Look at the three descriptions of himself quoted above, dated respectively. I want you to hear this. This is so, so interesting. Dated the first instance around 59 AD, then the second one, 63 AD, and the last one, 64 AD, successively, chronologically. I'm going to go back and read those again. In 59 AD, I am the, very le- I am the least of the apostles. 63 AD, I am the very least of the saints. And then by 64 AD, consider his journeys and what he encountered and what he experienced. In 64 AD, I am the foremost of sinners. As you get closer and closer to God, you cannot help but bow lower and lower and lower as you reach forward in praise, which lifts higher and higher the God in whom you serve. Paul, the longer he walked with Christ, the more humbled he became. The longer you walk with Christ, the more humbled you should become. What does that look like for you? Where are you at on the pride versus humility scale? Cultivate humility and passion for praise if you want to grow in grace. Philip Brooks made an apt comment when he said, the true way to 
to be humble is not to stoop until you were smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against something higher in nature that shows you what the real smallness of your greatness is. John, John the Baptist said this. His disciples come to him and they say, hey, there's this guy. We, we don't know who he is, but he's gaining disciples. And we, you know, they were, they were John, these, these, John had his own disciples. Now I want you to hear the conversation in John chapter 3. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah, John says. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Who are you following that is greater than you? And does that person have anybody greater than them? Because if you're following somebody who has somebody greater than them, you're following the wrong person. There is only one being in the whole universe that is the greatest of all time, the goat, if you will. His name is Yahweh, God. And to pledge your allegiance to anyone or anything else is just in vain. It's all about surrender through humility, because it's the prideful who cannot see and aren't willing to bow a knee. Our altars are always open. We have a prayer team that will come up and pray with you on my right, your left. If you want to be left alone to pray, you can come to my left, your right. But again, I ask, if the Lord has spoken to you through this message or anything spoken through or sung through the songs, don't leave today without meeting with God and reconciling more and more of yourself to who he desires for you to be. Father, we love you. We offer not just the previous time that we've had together, but this current time with you, we offer it to you as well. Thank you for moments of humbling. They're uncomfortable, God. I mean, it's not, it's not comfortable to be humble. And the reason it's not comfortable to be humble is because the kingdoms of this world don't celebrate humility. They celebrate pride. And when we become a citizen of your kingdom, the way of that kingdom is humility and service and love, self-sacrificing. It's, it's not about getting all that I want but it's, God, it's about God achieving all that I need. And all that I need is you. Help us to find contentment in that. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is new every morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close in our prayer? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. 
If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.